could go to losthorizons.com slash newsletter.htm. Welcome back to The Common Law, the best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson. I work at Nichols Castor in downtown Minneapolis, and I used to clerk for Justices Lilla Haug and McKaig. And my name is Allison Key, and I was a clerk for Justices Strauss and Hudson. Our feature case today involves fracking, golden sands, and the Minnesota Constitution. Uh, It's a fascinating one, but before we get to that, let's talk legal news. First up in legal news is a NPR blog post from Bob Collins, uh, posted on March 20th, called Justice Pokes Minnesota Supreme Court for Sesame Street Approach. So this article highlights another example in Justice Thiessen's ongoing string of knocks on textualism at the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, So this article was about a recent opinion from the court, and the facts of that case were that a defendant had burglarized a home when the occupants of the home were not there. At this point, there's no dispute between the parties that Mr. Rogers committed a burglary, that he possessed a BB gun while inside the building, and that the building was empty when he was inside. The police found him later with uh, a weapon, and he was charged with first-degree burglary. This case is about a statutory provision that takes what already is criminal conduct, the commission of a burglary, and aggravates it to a first-degree in one of three circumstances. Either the burglary occurs in an occupied dwelling, the burglar commits an assault, or, as relevant to the appeal here, the burglar possesses a particular type of item that heightens the risk associated with the crime. So the Minnesota statute at issue elevates burglary to a first-degree offense if, quote, the burglar possesses when entering or at any time while in the building any article used or fashioned in a manner to lead the victim to reasonably believe it to be a dangerous It's the victim who has to perceive this article and subjectively believe that this article is a dangerous weapon. So the main question in this case was about the fact that no one was home when he actually burglarized the house. So how can any victim reasonably have believed the weapon he happened to be using at the time was dangerous, uh, which would elevate it to first-degree burglary? It seems to me that the plain language of the statute suggests the, the victim has to, you know, be threatened. The victim here can't be threatened. The victim's not there. Counsel, how can you use something on the victim if the victim isn't there? So Chief Justice Gilday wrote for the majority in this case, saying this case asks us to determine whether the victim must be physically present during the burglary for a conviction under the statute. Because we conclude that the victim must be physically present under the subdivision, we reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals and remand to the District Court for resentencing consistent with this opinion. So the NPR blog article here, though, focuses, like we have on the show, on Justice Thiessen's disagreements with certain aspects of the court's predominant mode of statutory interpretation. Um, But this time, Justice Thiessen decided to do so in a more colorful way. So the article states, in a dissent, Justice Paul Thiessen, who once served in the legislature, in case anyone forgot, said, the majority fails to see the forest of legislative intent for the trees of grammatical conventions in this case. If the intent, if the purpose of the legislature was to keep people from being terrorized, the best way to do that is to say, just never use one of these things, whether someone there is not in this particular case. So is there any rule that would tell us we should just not kind of parse the words, but just look at the purpose of the whole phrase because what the legislature was doing at that time was just kind of taking the whole phrase, and so we should take the legislator at its its word at that. So the article elaborates just how off the rails Justice Thiessen went in making his point here, quoting his dissenting opinion to say, nothing in the structure of the statute suggests that the legislature intended the statute to be a Sesame Street game of one of these things is not like the others. He wrote, adding a footnote with the actual words, 
liked the song. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell me which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? So we know, obviously, Justice Deasit is kind of hammering this point home, but now resorting to using Sesame Street to help him make his point. At this point, I feel worse for his clerks who probably have to live with the fact that many people think they might be responsible for the idea of putting that in the footnote of the dissenting opinion, but don't worry, clerks, we know that that was all Justice Eason and not you, and we won't hold you responsible. Um, right, no, no clerk would ever try that. I do substantively like what he's doing here, in that, uh, you know, a real critique of textualism can be sarcastic like this. Uh, beneath the uh, attempt at humor here is another serious jab at textualism, this time not in a stray remark in an interview, but in a dissenting opinion in an actual Minnesota Supreme Court case. And, you know, the Sesame Street thing is tongue in cheek, but it makes the point that I think he's trying to make about textualism that uh, it can reduce this kind of analysis into simplistic uh, kind of uh, child-esque grammatical analysis as opposed to a real uh, critical uh, thought about uh, what the law is trying to do. What the language is talking about, what the, the statutory language uses the infinitive to lead rather than a progressive verb such as leading or causing. And when we use an infinitive to lead, what we are talking about there is the use of an infinitive indicates that the result does not need to occur, that it's more about could this happen? You know, it, it, it indicates a result that has not yet occurred. You, result you honestly think the legislature was parsing it that finely? I think that this court... Or that defendants would know about... Or that these rules of grammar... So uh, I'm supportive of what Justice Thiessen's doing here. Next up, we've got a story from the Star Tribune about an attorney, William Butler, who doesn't believe in taxes. So uh, he was charged by prosecutors in Ramsey County who alleged that he had not paid taxes or hadn't even filed taxes since 2008 when he listed zero on every line of his return uh, and that he had income of around $1.3 million uh, since then, none of which he paid taxes for. The Star Tribune says uh, Butler did not testify, but was allowed to submit excerpts from his blog about why he believed he did not have to pay taxes. He stated that uh, there is no question that Jesus regards tax collectors as sinners who have violated God's law and who must acknowledge their sins and repent. Um, Fortunately, listeners, we have spared you, uh, Allison and my attempts to determine whether... (laughs) Tax collectors are truly sinners. Yeah. um, Or if it was just a historical I took a Jesus in history course once, and uh, Allison was a Lutheran some decades ago, so it was was pretty informed. Um, I did go to his blog. If you've got what looks like uh, several hours to read, you could go to losthorizons.com slash newsletter slash take the red pill dot HTM. Um, you probably shouldn't do that. So uh, this is a guy who actually had previously been sanctioned by the Minnesota Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board. Um, and it might shock you to learn that he failed to pay the fees and fines he was sanctioned then. So uh, this In may his defense, be... it was like $300,000. Um, but the requirement was that he just make a good faith effort. Yeah. And I, I don't think he, he ever like, cared to do that. Did he think that Jesus opposes the Minnesota Lawyers Professional Responsibility Board? I can't see why he would draw the line just to tax collectors. I guess you'd have to ask him. Final piece of legal news is from Minnesota Lawyer on April 12th from Barbara L. Jones entitled Ruling Denies Funding for Public Defender Interpreter Services. So the article leads off a ruling last week denying funding for interpreter services to the public defender's office caught the lawyers around the state by surprise. So according to this piece, Minnesota Statute 611.21 allows a judge to authorize spending for investigative, expert, or other services. So the public defender's office can't afford to pay for interpreter funds throughout the entire year of cases that it it assists with out of the funds allocated to that office by the legislature. So they often ask the court for help with these expenses um, under 611.21. So in this particular case, a defendant was charged with second-degree intentional murder. The defendant doesn't speak English, so the public defender's office filed an application under Section 611.21, 
requesting interpreter services fees to facilitate communication with this client outside of court. So the judge in this case, Chief Judge Paul Benshoof, denied this request for funding for this out-of-court interpreter services for the defendant in this case, despite the judge acknowledging that the public defender budget for these services is completely depleted for the remainder of the fiscal year. So the state um, appealed this ruling uh, on the application for fees to the Court of Appeals, which did affirm. So there, at the Court of Appeals, Chief Judge Cleary stated, in a unanimous opinion, no one disputes that interpreter services are necessary to assist a criminal defendant who does not speak English during legal proceedings. But then, in the opinion, he ultimately agreed with the district court that interpreter services are not within the scope of the statute. So Cleary, for the Court of Appeals, determined that Section 611.21 is titled Services Other Than Counsel. So by its language, the statute concerns services that counsel would not ordinarily provide. So he stated, consulting and communicating with the client is at the heart of the attorney-client relationship. Therefore, it is the responsibility of the public defender to pay for interpretive services integral to client communication. So Catherine Middlebrook, the chief appellate defender, has indicated that the state will appeal this exact question about whether interpreter fees can be applied for under 611.21 to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Um, she said she hopes for some direction from the court on what to do next, saying our clients have a constitutional right to effective representation. So kind of a tension between you obviously need money for interpreter services, but the office is just not getting that money from the legislature. And at least two courts now have determined that the relevant statute 611.21 just by its language doesn't apply. So how do you preserve a constitutional right to effective representation? Stay tuned. In the realm of resulted cases, we have a fun one uh, that we covered some months ago. This is Warren v. Dinter. So as a reminder, this is the case about the woman who came into a clinic and saw a nurse practitioner who wanted to admit a patient to the hospital thinking that she had a systemic infection. The nurse didn't have admitting privileges at the hospital, so she called a hospitalist at the nearby hospital who heard the nurse practitioner's summary of the case and decided that the patient did not need to be admitted and instead just had uh, out-of-control diabetes. So uh, unfortunately, the patient died a few days later of sepsis and the patient's son sued on her behalf. So the relevant question in that case was whether the hospitalist, Dr. Dinter, could be sued for malpractice based on his limited interaction with the nurse practitioner about uh, the patient's case. This question, whether an on-call hospitalist, in this case, Dr. Dinter, who's contacted by Ms. Warren's uh, nurse practitioner seeking admission to the hospital, participated sufficiently in the diagnosis and treatment of Ms. Warren to trigger a duty of care. So the Minnesota Supreme Court, in an opinion by Justice Lillehaug, opened the opinion saying, in this case of first impression, we must decide whether a hospitalist's alleged decision to deny a patient admission to the hospital may constitute professional negligence. We conclude that it may. So deciding in favor of the son of the patient. The court held that a physician-patient relationship is not a requirement for medical malpractice claim. Instead, the court reiterated that Minnesota follows a minority rule in which the foreseeability of reliance on medical advice is the standard for the first element of a medical malpractice claim. I think it was important for them, in this opinion, to acknowledge that this was a minority rule because despite them attempting to state, well, this has been the law in Minnesota for 50 or 100 years or whatever they said, I think it would come as maybe a little bit of a surprise to both medical practitioners and also they associate the same standard with legal practitioners to know that a true professional client or professional patient relationship isn't required for a malpractice claim. So I think it was important that they at least took a second to recognize that it was a minority rule and it wasn't inconceivable that people might be expecting that more would be required before a duty was imposed on them in a professional setting. Yeah, this seemed like a close case at oral argument. Um, so the court wrote, when there's no express physician-patient relationship, we've turned to the traditional inquiry of whether a tort duty has been created by the foreseeability of harm. And the opinion also addressed a concern that we discussed uh, back uh, during oral argument, which was also raised by Amici, about whether this 
would discourage informal consultations between healthcare providers about patient care. So in the opinion, Justice Lillehau writes, Dinder and Fairview argue that the conversation between Simon and Dinder was a so-called curbside consultation and therefore cannot subject them to liability. They, Amici, and the dissent all warn that making physicians liable for curbside consultations would harm patients by chilling beneficial interaction among professionals. So I'm reliably informed by Allison that in the field of medicine, the phrase curbside consultation is kind of a term of art referring to uh, truly informal brief consultations uh, between providers about patients. And the court distinguished that kind of thing from what uh, happened here. So Justice Lillehug wrote that the hospitalist here essentially was acting as a gatekeeper to the hospital, which was different in kind from a curbside consultation. Those steps took you beyond the informal consultation exemption, if you want to call it that, and, and, and the duty was triggered once you became that actively involved, if you could reasonably foresee that the other professional acting on behalf of the patient would rely on your advice. And that had there been a less formal, uh, less kind of consequential uh, conversation, that the case might have come out differently. Our feature case today is called Minnesota Sands versus Winona County. Minnesota Sands is a company that between 2011 and 2012 acquired several leases for significant portions of land in Winona County. With the land, Minnesota Sands intended to engage in silica sand mining. So uh, this is, everybody was clear that this was the reason why they leased the land and that was mentioned in the lease, et cetera. Um, the way the leases are drafted, um, they allow Minnesota Sands uh, to mine for silica sand. And I forgot the exact language, but you know, in, in beneficial commercial use. The reason why Minnesota Sands wanted to mine the silica was to process and use it in hydraulic fracturing, uh, which you may know as fracking, i.e., uh, you know, shoving a bunch of sand into the ground to help uh, get oil out of it. As I understand it, the silica sand has to be processed somewhere before it can be used as a prop, a prop in, in, frac, in, uh, in the oil production. Um, so the, the silica is used in, as what's called a propent um, that does some of the uh, work you need to do to, uh, to do fracking. Uh, the marketplace uh, puts a premium on the silica sand because of the quality uh, and its use uh, as a propent in hydraulic fracturing. And it turns out to be the case that the silica in Winona County is especially good silica that this company is especially interested in. This is really, really high quality uh, silica sand that the research done to date on the quality of the sand as a propent suggests that very, very minimal uh, processing would be necessary. So uh, Minnesota Sands had the leases to use the land, but in addition, they needed a permit from the county to actually mine the silica sand. And that's where things got interesting. Uh, fracking, as you probably know, is a controversial thing, uh, what with the ongoing destruction of the planet that we live on. And so Minnesota Sands' decision to mine it was controversial among various uh, groups of people. So in response to those concerns, Winona County amended its zoning ordinance to change the treatment of silica sand mining. So the amended ordinance imposed a countywide ban on operations involving, quote, industrial materials, and then defined industrial materials to specifically include silica sand used in industrial applications. And further, the amendment defined industrial to mean fracking. So essentially, Winona County amended the relevant ordinance to uh, ban mining for sand to be used in fracking. The other thing to know about the amendment is that it did not ban all mining of the specific type of sand at issue, that while it prohibited mining for industrial applications, it continued to permit mining for construction minerals. So if you look at the definition of uh, construction minerals, uh, which is the large ex exemption or exception, uh, it includes uh, sand that is produced and used for local construction purposes and then it, it has some examples, uh, road pavement, unpaved road gra gravel, concrete, asphalt, building, construction zone, even, even bedding for, for livestock. So essentially, uh, these sands can be used in different ways. 
sometimes for fracking, which uh, it, they can be very profitably sold for those purposes, uh, and sometimes for other uh, construction type type things. And uh, you can continue mining them and selling them for construction purposes, but not for fracking purposes under the ordinance. So now that you have this distinction in the type of uh, thing that this sand is allowed to be mined for, uh, that has some interesting kind of practical consequences. Uh, the biggest of which is that the fracking purpose, uh, people selling the sand for that purpose are uh, pretty much exclusively selling out of state. Uh, there is no fracking that is occurring in Minnesota or uh, likely to occur in the future. What it excludes, the, the larger definition of industrial minerals, uh, are all things that, for the most part, happen, or actually, it, 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 the factual record shows, happens well outside of Winona County. And on the flip side, uh, people selling the sand for uh, construction-related purposes are pretty much just selling it in-state. Concrete, asphalt, building, construction zone, even, even bedding for, for livestock. Those are all uses that occur locally. And so that will bring up the Dormant Commerce Clause, which we'll discuss in a bit. The second one is just kind of the sequence of what happened here, which again is that uh, the company bought the lease to the lands, then Winona County amended its ordinance, and then uh, subsequently the company was unable to obtain the permit that it wanted to do, and uh, the company has concerns about uh, how that went for them. Um, Minnesota Sands invested millions of dollars in order to develop But uh, is your mines. point essentially, look, the value of our property interest is, at the, at the low end, $62 million. Mm -hmm. And now, after the county did what it did, the value of our interest is zero. So they've taken $62 million from us. So Minnesota Sands sued Winona County and alleged that the amended ordinance violates the dormant interstate commerce clause of the United States Constitution as well as the takings clause of the Minnesota and United States constitutions. So the district court sided with Winona County, dismissing these uh, claims from Minnesota Sands, um, and the Court of Appeals later affirmed that trial court's judgment for Winona County in a 17-page opinion with a 26-page concurrence in part and dissent in part. So people are wound up about this case. But in any event, we have two wins for the county here at the trial court and the court of appeals, and Minnesota Sands is facing what is arguably an uphill battle by the time we get to the Minnesota Supreme Court. So to briefly cover the court of appeals opinion and introduce some of the principles behind the legal arguments in this case, remember that Mark said there were two constitutional issues, the United States Constitution's Dormant Commerce Clause issue and the takings clause issue under the Minnesota and U.S. constitutions. So in regards to the Commerce Clause issue, the federal constitution in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, grants Congress the power to regulate commerce among the states. So this is called the Commerce Clause. So there is a principle in, uh, that's understood to be an inference from or corollary to the federal constitution's Commerce Clause called the Dormant Commerce Clause. And reading from its opinion, the Court of Appeals explains it like this. The Commerce Clause refers to an affirmative grant of power to Congress, but it has long been interpreted to contain an implied negative command. The Dormant Commerce Clause, that states may not unduly burden or discriminate against interstate commerce. So that Commerce Clause is a power of the federal government, and the Dormant Commerce Clause, the acknowledged uh, underbelly of the Commerce Clause is essentially a check on what states can do if what they are doing affects interstate commerce. The Commerce Clause, as sort of a general principle, uh, wants to create a national marketplace that doesn't create a local fiefdom, for example, in one geographic area that can hoard uh, a particular natural resource. So on the Commerce Clause issue, the Court of Appeals reasoned that the amended ordinance did not favor in-state interests over out-of-state interests, which would, as we just discussed, violate the Dormant Commerce Clause as a way of the county, in this case, discriminating or burdening interstate commerce. The Court of Appeals determined that because this amended ordinance, quote, even-handedly bans all industrial mineral mining, which includes silica sand mining within the county, 
the ordinance does not discriminate against interstate commerce in violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. They further state that, quote, the across-the-board application of the ordinance is detrimental to both in-state interests, such as those of Minnesota Sands, as well as out-of-state interests, which indicates that the ordinance does not discriminate on its face, end quote. So moving then to the second constitutional question, the takings clause, uh, the Minnesota Constitution, Article 1, Section 13, states that private property shall not be taken or damaged for public use without just compensation. So as the Court of Appeals states, the U.S. Constitution's takings clause has similar language. So both do apply here, but I think it's good to take a second to appreciate why the Court of Appeals specifically detailed that it was focusing on the Minnesota Constitution and not the U.S. Constitution, um, though the U.S. Constitution does remain in the background here. So the Court of Appeals states this. Appellate courts may rely on cases interpreting the takings clause of the United States Constitution in interpreting this clause of the Minnesota Constitution. However, property interests themselves are not created by the United States Constitution and instead are created and their dimensions are defined by existing rules or understandings that stem from an independent source such as state law, end quote. So obviously here at uh, the common law headquarters, we appreciate the focus on the Minnesota Constitution and Minnesota courts above their federal counterparts because we think state constitutional law is both cooler and often more powerful than the federal constitution. But uh, too often, I think we see the state judicial branch being more timid about interpreting its uh, own laws and constitution rather than federal law or over the bounds of how federal courts interpret federal law. So it was a refreshing change of pace uh, here to see the Court of Appeals head in a different and uh, obviously in our view more appropriate direction so hopefully the minnesota supreme court takes notice anyway on the takings clause question the court of appeals finally concluded that there was no taking here of minnesota sands property when the ordinance was changed after minnesota sands had bought the rights to this land because minnesota sands didn't as mark said have those permits for silica mining on that land by the time the ordinance had changed. So without that permit, because Minnesota Sands had no quote-unquote right to mine on that land, so the Court of Appeals concluded it had no compensable property interest at the time of the ordinance change, and therefore no quote-unquote taking had occurred. So on appeal to the Minnesota Supreme Court, the issues presented are first, whether the county's ordinance amendment violates the Commerce Clause, specifically the Dormant Commerce Clause, and second, whether the county has quote-unquote taken mineral rights belonging to Minnesota Sands as a result of amending this ordinance to ban silica mining for fracking after Minnesota Sands had purchased those rights to use this land for that exact purpose and thus owes compensation to Minnesota Sands under the takings clause of the Minnesota and United States Constitution. There are two issues before the court today. First, does the county's 2016 amendment of its zoning ordinance violate the Dormant Commerce Clause of the United States Constitution? And second, does the amendment create a regulatory taking of Minnesota Sands' property interest without just compensation? So representing Minnesota Sands in this case is Christopher Dolan from Bakery Baker Daniels. So we tend to give lawyers representing big interests a hard time on this show, mostly because they deserve it. Um, but one aspect of Christopher Dolan's Fagery Baker Daniels profile is pretty neat. So it says this, prior to joining Fagery Baker Daniels, Chris worked as a McCleary Law Fellow with the Human Rights Campaign. Before beginning his legal career, he was Executive Director of Neighbors Helping Neighbors Food Drives, an organization that collected food for Twin Cities food shelves. Uh, may it please the court and counsel, my name is Chris Dolan, and I represent the appellant, Minnesota Sands. And representing Winona County is Jay Squires uh, from Rupp Anderson Squires in Waldsburger. Uh, got his JD from William Mitchell and represents school districts, counties, and cities throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin. Has argued a ton of cases before uh, the appellate courts in Minnesota. And I think three cases before the Minnesota Supreme Court that I could find. So well known to the justices. So two claims in this case, right? The Dormant Commerce Clause claim and the Takings Clause claim. And we'll take uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause first. I'd like to start on the Commerce Clause claim. 
In this case, Minnesota Sands is challenging the constitutionality of the county's amendment, which prohibits other parts of the country from utilizing Winona County's silica sand. Um, and Minnesota Sands makes a couple arguments about that. Um, the first is based around the fact that there are a couple markets for this sand. One of those markets is exclusively in the state of Minnesota, and that's the like construction market. And the other market is exclusively out of state, and that's the one that the ordinance refers to as industrial purposes and bans. Is that we do have an, an intrastate market for the same sand. Um, and it's that market that's being benefited and, and held up, uh, and frankly given a beneficial market conditions, because it's the only potential use of sand from Monona County uh, under the, the amendment as it's framed out here. What the amendment does is it, it creates an artificial marketplace, right? It creates this separate market uh, for local sand that's priced much lower because it's the only potential use of sand locally. Um, if there wasn't, if the amendment wasn't in place and all the market players who mine silica sand could participate in the local market or the interstate market, the price would be much higher. By virtue of the sharp distinction between these markets and between in-state and out-of-state, Minnesota Sands is arguing that, in effect, Winona County has banned the export of silica sand. In this case, Minnesota Sands is challenging the constitutionality of the county's amendment, which prohibits other parts of the country from utilizing Winona County's silica sand. In effect, what the county is doing is engaging in impermissible economic balkanization of the area. Uh, because it can be used in-state, but it cannot be used for fracking, which is exclusively out-of-state. And if that was the case, if there was a facial export ban, then the ordinance would be a per se uh, unconstitutional violation of the Dormant Commerce Clause. So the industrial minerals, as defined on the ordinance, uh, would be banned uh, in any location. However, our argument, Your Honor, is that in effect, because those uh, uh, sands are not used for any industrial operations in Minnesota, in Winona County, that in effect what it creates is a ban on the interstate uh, use of silica sand. And I think, frankly, because the reality is that that's what the demand is, is for the uh, use of what the county defines as industrial minerals because outside of the state. This argument uh, got a skeptical showing from the Minnesota Supreme Court. So uh, Justice McCaig was straight out of the blocks. Can I just ask a point of clarification? You said that, um, that they're not allowing uh, places out all around the country, but that also includes the state of Minnesota and the county of Winona, correct? To uh, not use that sand? And Justice Lillehaug draws a little blood soon after that um, by getting Minnesota Sands' attorney to admit that while there isn't a market in Minnesota for fracking uh, using the silica sand, there is a market for other non-construction purposes, uh, including uh, countertops and other things that could be qualified uh, classified as industrial under the statute. Well, counsel, isn't there evidence in the record that this uh, silica sand is used for industrial purposes such as countertops and abrasion and things like that in Minnesota? State What's Minnesota. the evidence in the record about how much is in-state and out-state? There is evidence in the record that it is used and can be used in-state, though, in Minnesota. The response from Minnesota stands about this stuff is that it's not real, that uh, perhaps the court is able to summon up some hypotheticals uh, suggesting that it's not as cut and dry as uh, Minnesota Sands' description of that kind of practical reality is. But in reality, um, what the ordinance amendment amounts to is a, a practical ban on the interstate sale of this Sands. And that, that practical reality is what should govern the court's analysis. Uh, it, it's not, uh, there are some exceptions, there are some, some uses of industrial minerals that at least in theory could be used uh, in Minnesota, that's right, Your Honor. But our argument is that, in effect, that there's not a market demand for those products from Winona County, uh, and that uh, the vast majority of the interest, the market demand for uh, what the county defines as industrial minerals are well outside of Winona County and outside the state of Minnesota. A final point that Minnesota Sands does make on this Dormant Commerce Clause issue was that it wanted to make clear to the court that Minnesota Sands wasn't asking the court to rule that counties cannot regulate in the interest of the health and safety of its land and citizens. Now, I think it's important to start out by describing what this case is not about. This case is not about the county's authority to regulate silica sand mining in the area and to implement regulations that protect human health and safety of its residents. It's not disputed by Minnesota Sands that the ordinance was amended 
for the purpose, a valid purpose of protecting the environment and the health of the people of Winona County. But Minnesota Sands makes the point that even valid health or environmental concerns must be regulated and addressed in a non-discriminatory manner. Uh, Minnesota Sands respects the county's ability to regulate for the health and safety, uh, but wants to make sure that when it regulates for the health and safety, it doesn't do so in a way that discriminates against uh, interstate uh, commerce. Which, in Minnesota Sands' mind, it just isn't the case here. And what this amendment does is that it in, in essence, in effect, and how it's applied, given the reality of the situation that uh, what the county terms uh, construction minerals are all ones that are used locally for animal bedding, for road construction. Those are all uses that are of, of importance to the county and the local area. As you might guess, Winona County frames the Dormant Commerce Clause question a little differently. They frame it as, does uh, an action by the government create an advantage to in-state interest to the detriment of out-of-state interest. The underlying environmental motivation for the ordinance, in my judgment, is not relevant to the fundamental Commerce Clause analysis, which is, do these regulations discriminate against interstate commerce? Do they burden interstate commerce to the benefit of in-state commerce? Um, again, I try to simplify, in my mind, a complex area of law on the Commerce Clause, but simply, in this case, the question is, looking at the regulations, do they create a competitive advantage for in-state interests to the detriment of out-state interests? Because this amendment in Winona County's ordinance is not an export ban, Winona County argues that it is not discriminatory. So uh, they say that all this speculation about how things might work in practice is not the right way to look at it. The question here is whether the amendment on its face is discriminatory. Now keep in mind, this is a facial challenge. Mr. Dolan used the word in effect a couple times. The dissent said, well, Mr. Dolan argued at oral argument in effect or stated another way in application. Therefore, it's fair game. I disagree with that. These are, if you look at the complaint, if you look at the briefing, it's a facial challenge. So it's kind of a combination of two things that have come up. One, they think that it's just appropriate to look at the words in a way that maybe would uh, draw the umbrage of Justice Thiessen and see what they say and, uh, and just make your decision from there without looking at the practical consequences. Looking at the ordinance provisions, first, the ordinance, as the court has noted, bans industrial mining and defines industrial mining and defines industrial minerals. It does so neutrally. It does so to the detriment of Minnesota mining companies, like Minnesota Sands. It does so to the detriment of outstate mining companies if they wish to operate. And the other is that it's not actually clear that uh, the divide that Minnesota Sands is asserting is actually as stark uh, as they say it is. In a Commerce Clause analysis, there must be different, differing treatment in a single market. From a Commerce Clause standpoint, you also then have to look at, um, what they urge is that you look at the ordinance as a whole and look at the interplay between the construction sand provisions and this. And because they use the word local, it's violative of the Commerce Clause. That's where the different markets uh, issue comes in. Minnesota Sands concedes in their materials uh, in their briefs, both at the Court of Appeals, this court, and I think at the District Court as well, that the local construction sand market is a different market. It's that there may be other industrial uses for this sand. And even if there aren't now, I, I imagine the argument would be that they could exist in the future. And we can't be doing our dormant commerce clause analysis based on uh, courts' empirical assessment of present uh, commercial conditions when you know things could change uh, in the future. So moving on to the takings claim question, starting with the appellant in Minnesota Sands. Minnesota Sands argues that Winona County has deprived the company, Minnesota Sands, of the value of its leases without just compensation. One way to think about it is that prior to the amendment, Minnesota Sands did have a right to seek a permit to mine. And the amendment took that right away. And the direct result of that is the valuation went from you know, $62 million uh, down to zero. So Minnesota Sands holds these unexpired leases to mine the sand for fracking and maybe some other purposes. 
But there is a question, at least in Minnesota Sands' mind, about whether Minnesota Sands' lease to use that land allows the company to convert the use of those leases from silica mining for industrial uses, for fracking, to sell the sand to fracking companies, to the more permissible construction use under the amended ordinance. Again, these leases were drafted uh, well before the ban was put into place, well before it came a, a, a legal question. Um, the way the leases are drafted, um, they allow Minnesota Sands uh, to mine for silica sand. Uh, and our interpretation of those leases with this amendment, um, you know, which the language, don't, language doesn't quite fit, but our interpretation is that is that it may prevent Minnesota Sands from actually engaging in uh, mining for uh, construction sand. So if that's the case, Winona County then has rendered Minnesota Sands' leases to mine this land completely worthless, amounting to a taking requiring compensation to Minnesota Sands. Um, under the takings analysis, uh, that you know, is a potentially relevant question. We look at what uh, economic value uh, remains within um, the leases, you know, with the amendment in place. That could be a relevant question. So I think that's an open question of, of fact about what, what uses of the mineral rights exist post-amendment. The problem from the court for Minnesota Sands is that the justices really focused on the fact that Minnesota Sands never actually got the permit to mine silica. So yes, they had those lease holdings and the ability to eventually use the land from the landowner, but they didn't have the permit or a full right to use the land for that purpose. Council, I'd like to talk about the conditional use permit issue and the taking question. The argument that the county makes that somehow the failure to secure a conditional use permit is uh, fatal to your uh, takings claim. But, but if you didn't have to pay anything to the landlord unless you got a conditional use permit, for example, isn't that relevant to whether you've lost anything? So what cases support that that position that the right to seek a permit is a compensable property interest? So council, um, is the right to seek a conditional use permit itself a property right? So in the face of that, Minnesota Sands then argued that you don't need a fully developed pre-existing right to state a takings claim. The pre-existing right to engage in a regulated activity uh, is not a prerequisite of a takings claim. In other words, um, it's not a requirement to do a takings analysis that you had to have some sort of pre-existing right. And further, Minnesota Sands argued that even with some of the requirements, specifically the permit, unfulfilled, they presented evidence at trial via an expert witness who concluded that the value of the leases themselves still had considerable worth, even without the permit. Minnesota Sands had an expert who uh, did an evaluation of the value of these leases the, the day before the amendment went into effect. So at that point, um, there was still conditional use permit requirement. Um, environmental review still had to be completed. Um, but it had those opportunities, those options available to it. Um, and what the what, what John Maines concluded, and it's only evidence on this in the record, is that even with those requirements unfulfilled, the, our expert still opined that the value of those leases were between 62 and $131 million. Monona County makes some real legal arguments, but kind of what I understood to be the theme underlying everything they said is like, well, you guys really shouldn't have screwed this up. Like, uh, if you, as a business, you wanted to do some mining for fracking, well, you need a lease and you need a permit. And you got a lease and you didn't get a permit. There is no case that exists that says the Minnesota Constitution does not require the existence of a pre-existing right as a condition precedent to a taking claim. In this particular case, I would boil down the threshold question that is before this court in this fashion. Can a right to mine be taken when one has no right to mine? Because Minnesota Sands did not have the permit, there's no way that Winona County's denial of a permit for mining for a certain purpose could be a denial or a taking of a compensable right held by Minnesota Sands. So on the level of existing property rights, the, the EIS is a complete impediment um, to their getting a um, permit. 
they didn't have a right to mine by operation of 116 D04. Um, in 2013, upon adoption of that order, 2014, 2015, 2016, at the time that the OA ordinance amendment uh, provisions were adopted, as we stand here today, they have no right to mine. And it's quite interesting in oral argument to hear both the attorney from Minnesota Sands and the attorney for Winona County argue completely opposite points on whether a compensable property interest exists in the land that one could have achieved a permit for um, or not, whether you need a pre-existing fully developed right or not. And the court actually asked both attorneys for support on their completely opposite claims on that question, and neither of them could come up with a citation for their point. So what cases support that, that position that the right to seek a permit is a compensable property interest? Um, Your Honor, I, I can't recall the case name. There, there is a case. It is not in a, it's not in a takings analysis, but it talks about how uh, in, uh, in Minnesota, when a conditional use permit, for example, sets out specific requirements that need to be met in order to get that conditional use oh, permit. North Point. North Point, thank okay. you. Uh, as a matter of right, they, they have the ability so you're to kind of that. extrapolating from that case. Okay. Correct. Is the right to seek a conditional use permit itself a property right? The short answer to that is no under existing case law. In which case law is that? We cite that in our materials, and I don't have that um, handy. It's fair to say that uh, Winona County's argument that, you know, you just didn't have the permit yet, and so we can do whatever we want, did not go over completely well. Um, at least Justice Anderson, a couple points, expressed uh, some dissatisfaction with the idea that uh, the rug could be pulled out from under Minnesota Sands in this way. Here's what my concern is. My concern is that a governmental unit can adopt zoning regulations and then point to those zoning The argument becomes almost circular, that you're just not permitted to use your property because the government says you're not permitted to use your property. And that seems to me what's happening here. Why can't a municipality just say every development is subject to a conditional use permit? You need the permission from the city to do anything with your property. And I would argue that some zoning ordinances come very close to that. If that's true, then aren't we where I, what were, aren't we where I suggested we, we were a few minutes ago? Um, that's a taking. You can't use your property because the government says you can't. So after making that point more than once from Justice Anderson about the practical effects of Winona County amending their ordinance in this way, Justice Deason stepped in and asked the attorney a question about the logical endpoint of Justice Anderson's frustration here. What's well, answer on the flip on side it? of that argument that you can't ever pass any regulations that would protect health and safety? I mean, that seems to be the, the where Justice Anderson's argument goes, right? So it was just kind of an interesting back and forth through the attorney. So, so even, if I, even if I grant, um, and I think the point has merit, the point that Justice uh, Thiessen made about environmental regulations and so forth, but we're not at that stage, right? I mean, we're here, your argument here is they didn't get the conditional use permit. Still clearly felt uncomfortable about how this all went down, as did the chief. Let's just say it's gold. You find gold under your land, and then the city of St. Paul says, nope. I mean, come on now. Really, sure. you're going to say that's not a taking? Just a few stray notes from argument to close us out. This oral argument was held at the University of Minnesota Law School as part of the regular traveling road show that the Minnesota Supreme Court puts on. And it's been my impression that uh, the justices broadly try to be extra prepared for uh, such arguments and, and more power to them. I think it's a, a cool program and everything. Uh, Justice Lillehaug in particular uh, may have been practicing beforehand his pronunciation of certain words, and he delivered a 10 out of 10 under the bright lights. What is your client's intention in that regard? And if it did processing on site, would he use these two toxic chemicals, acrylamide uh, mm -hmm. and diethyl dimethyl aluminum chloride? Do you know when a gymnast like at the Olympics uh, sticks the landing and then they do the thing where they do like the little bows in all four directions and they're smiling and everyone loves it? Like that's the feeling of positivity I got from Justice Lillehaug after that portion of the argument. And I'm proud of him. Um, so, Mark, Minnesota Sands has lost twice. Can they win this case? 
No. Uh, I think they made a business screw up and it costs a lot of money and they feel no choice but to exhaust their legal opportunities. And uh, I don't think that, frankly, I didn't feel that either one of their claims was uh, very good. And it seemed like at least four of the justices uh, agreed on each of those. So, um, so no, I feel pretty confident that uh, Winona County will win this one. I think the of the two, the Commerce Clause or the Takings Claim, I think the Takings Claim probably, if Minnesota Sands could somehow pull off a win here, the Takings Claim would be where it would come from. It's hard to see, I agree, from oral argument that they have more than two votes on that. Certainly, the Chief and Justice Anderson clearly felt for Minnesota Sands on that point. Come on now. Really? You're going to say that's not a taking? Come on. Come on. But I agree. Certain members of the court uh, really, really did not. But there were a lot of members of the court we didn't even hear from on the takings claim. I don't think Justice Hudson asked any questions on it. I can't remember if Justice Chudich really indicated which way she was leaning. And, And the law doesn't seem settled based on the attorney's arguments on that point in oral argument on whether the fact that they didn't have a permit was really fatal to their claim. Um, seems like they both just argued in opposite directions and neither could really support whether or not that would actually prevent them from being able to establish that simply the lease holdings with the potential to get a conditional use permit was a compensable property interest. So I think if they have a shot, it's there. Uh, the dormant commerce clause claim seems like no one was really into it. Um, for Minnesota Sands there. Uh, I think it's obvious that they probably wanted to try, Minnesota Sands wanted to try the Dormant Commerce Clause because of the remedies involved. So if they, for some reason, actually win on the Dormant Commerce Clause, then they get to mine silica for fracking purposes in Winona County. If they win on the takings claim, also somehow, for some reason, they get just compensation. So obviously that's why they came out so hard on the Dormant Commerce Clause is because that's probably a remedy that they would prefer. But it really doesn't look like that's going to be even close for them. So, What did we learn from the case today, Allison? From the case today, we learned that Winona County sits atop a mountain of golden sand. <laughs> <laughs> that about does it for us. Thanks for listening to The Common Lot. Get your free CLE credit. Uh, we'll post it in the show notes. And check out the free CLE calendar on the com. Thanks, as always, to our uh, sponsor, the Mike Schultz Law Firm. And uh, we're out of here. Have a nice one, commenters. My life is a disaster. (laughs) 